the ordinance of covenanting. This is our 45th week. <clears throat> the Psalm League and Covenant. Uh, this is part eight. And this will be the last portion on the Solemn League. We're up to the conclusion. <clears throat> Before I read the conclusion, I want to read the fourth term of communion again. That public social covenanting is an ordinance of God obligatory on churches and nations under the New Testament. That the National Covenant and the Solemn League are an exemplification of this divine institution. And that these deeds are of continued obligation upon the moral person. <clears throat> so, uh, we're going to be looking at the conclusion of the Solemn League and Covenant. And then, um, Lord willing, we are going to, uh, starting next week, uh, for a few weeks, we're going to spend time on that idea of these deeds being of continued obligation upon the moral person, the idea of descending obligation of covenants, before we move on to discuss the idea of covenant renewal. So we're working our way through all of the different propositions which are found here in the fourth term of communion. Um, we've, we've gone through the public social covenanting as an ordinance of God, and that it's obligatory in churches and nations under the New Testament. And we've talked about the national covenant. We're finishing up the Solemn League, and then we'll move on to the moral person. And then uh, we're going to be looking, as I say, uh, next time, Lord willing, uh, at the, the uh, descending obligation. And then after that, we'll move on to the idea of covenant <laughs> renewal, and particularly the Arkansas renovation. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> let's look at the conclusion. And because these kingdoms are guilty of many sins and provocations against God and His Son, Jesus Christ, as is too manifest by our present distresses and dangers, the fruits thereof, we profess and declare before God and the world our unfeigned desire to be humbled for our own sins and for the sins of these kingdoms, especially that we have not, as we ought, valued the inestimable benefit of the gospel, that we have not labored for the purity and power thereof, <clears throat> and we have not endeavored to receive Christ in our hearts, <clears throat> no, uh, not to, to walk worth, nor to walk worthy of him in our lives, which are the causes of other sins and transgressions so much uh, abounding amongst us, and our true and unfeigned purpose, desire, and endeavor for ourselves and all others under our power and charge, both in public and private, in all duties we owe to God and man. <clears throat> to amend our lives and each one to go before another in the example of a real reformation <clears throat> that the Lord may turn away his wrath and heavy indignation and establish these churches and kingdoms in truth and peace and this covenant we make in the presence of almighty God the searcher of all hearts with the true intention to perform the same as we shall answer at that great day when the secrets of all hearts shall be disclosed. Most humbly beseeching the Lord to strengthen us by his Holy Spirit for this end and to bless 
<clears throat> our desires and proceedings with such success as may be deliverance and safety to his people and encouragement to other Christian churches groaning under or in danger of the yoke of anti-Christian tyranny to join in the same or like association and covenant to the glory of God, the enlargement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and the peace and tranquility of Christian kingdoms and commonwealths. So, there are <clears throat> there are several things that are going on here. Um, <clears throat> we have the um, the idea of confessing of our sins against God and Christ. Uh, <clears throat> we've got uh, this idea of the sins of a people against God being manifest by their fruit. <clears throat> and uh, by that, <clears throat> as we'll see, we're not talking about um, the fruit of, of, um, of those sins as they are, uh, you know, wicked and, and all of that, but really as they are provoking of judgments and um, so that's that's a problem and then uh, we, we want to talk about this idea of desiring to be humbled for our sins which they bring up very important point additionally uh, they want Aside all of that, uh, they, they want to purpose and desire <coughs> to amend their lives and go before one another as examples of real reformation. We will uh, certainly have to talk about that. Uh, the ends that are aimed by making confession of sin. They bring them up, and we're going to talk about them. And then we're going to get into how covenants should be taken uh, in, in general. And it'll be brief. We've, we've talked about some of this stuff in, in um, uh, discussing the theology that is associated with and behind the doctrine of covenanting. Uh, we are interested in... Just briefly encompassing that idea because it's taken into the covenant here. And then we will look at the way they wrap up this covenant in the end. <clears throat> um, and I, I really want, <coughs> when we get to the very end, <clears throat> I want to make a few comments about um, uh, the, the way they end it because I, I do think that provides a bit of a link to um, uh, a bit of a link to to what we're going to be talking about with with uh, uh, descending obligation and covenant renewal. All right, so. <coughs> 
<coughs> we have a number of points we need to discuss uh, that are, again, concluding points. Like, so we've gone over the, uh, the articles, the six articles, <coughs> and we've uh, discussed the, the main, uh, if you think of the, the six articles as being six uh, six general heads of proposed uh, prosecution of the covenant plan. <coughs> now at the, at the conclusion, they're trying to wrap up this idea of covenanting and do so with um, with an eye to their present situation and an eye really to what they contemplate to be the end of taking this covenant. <coughs> right, so this conclusion is really a bridge between what they've stated in those articles as purposing to do and where they see all of this going when it's being put into effect. <coughs> now, the very idea <coughs> that they're considering where this is going to go, the consequence of their actions in the future, I would suggest to you is one, if not the main motivation for examining their actions leading up to this. And keep in mind, it's not something we've, we've dealt with extensively yet, but uh, they're, they're um, involved in this act of covenanting <coughs> not merely as individuals. But the people who are in the forefront of this are, in fact, the leaders of the nation, or nations involved, together with the churches of those nations. Uh, that's not to say that the individuals <coughs> in various parishes are not involved. In fact, uh, let me just say this, that we know We know that um, when this covenant was taken, that it was sent to literally every parish church in England, for example. <clears throat> uh, and I, I'm using England for the example in this case. Uh, it, it was taken in Scotland as well and, and in Ireland, but... Uh, in England, we have a lot of documents that were actually published as a result of taking this. So what they would do <coughs> is they, they took this covenant, and then later on, there was a renewal of this covenant after the Westminster Assembly period uh, in 1648. Uh, we have in our confessional standards... Uh, we have 
an acknowledgement of, of sins and uh, some other documents <coughs> that, that solemn acknowledgement of public sins and breaches of covenant from 1648 uh, which is in fact uh, something that they took after the Westminster period uh, and in preparation for enacting all of these things that they they um, comprised or composed at Westminster. And Westminster was about framing documents for the purpose of uniformity in doctrine, worship, government, and discipline. And so they covered every aspect of that. <clears throat> and before they went to put in effect, they, they had this, um, this period where the covenant was going to be renewed, the Psalm League, uh, before putting all of these things into practice. And they have this solemn acknowledgement of sin uh, that they, uh, they've uh, printed in with our standards. Now, when they did that, the covenant was not only sent to every parish, but like I said, there were a number of them, and I've, I've collected a number of these documents, and there are more than I have. I don't know how many of them there were, uh, were printed, but uh, different provinces would come back with signatures from the ministers of the parish churches. And this is how we know that a lot of people, uh, famous people, people, names that you would know, not only do we know that you know Samuel Rutherford and, and George Gillespie and people like that in, in Scotland signed on, but in England, <clears throat> a lot of people who were not Westminster divines, but uh, were uh, some some of who were uh, they were Westminster divines, but some were not Westminster divines, but they were very much actively engaged on behalf of this covenant endeavor. People like Thomas Watson. He signed on. Uh, there, there's just a very good list of, of signatories on these documents. And so they're very interesting, not only in that they're confirming and adding their amens to, uh, a lot of times to the acknowledgement of sins in 1648 and 49, that era. <coughs> but we, we can see the names of a lot of very prominent Puritans, English Puritans. And we see that they were, uh, even if they weren't at Westminster, a lot of them were covenanted. And that means that a lot of them actually become, uh, in essence, covenant breakers when they begin to depart after the Restoration and so on. And so, you know, the, the fact that uh, a lot of Puritan material gets republished by Banner of Truth and others, uh, that's fine, but you will notice that a lot of these covenant breakers, uh, Puritans who are covenant breakers, who sign these covenants, they spend most, if not all their time, talking about issues of interior pietism. They are they become entirely retreatist. They've given up on this project. And that, again, as we're going to see as we go through this conclusion, is entirely contrary to the tenor of the covenant. Right? They don't have a right to do that. 
but they did. And so, <clears throat> while uh, you know, I'm not going to say that everything they wrote is bad or anything like that. A lot of it's helpful. Uh, if your entire diet <coughs> is post <coughs> uh, post restoration uh, uh, Puritan writings. Um, you're going to get a, a very wrong idea about Reformed theology. Uh, and a lot of these people today who are emphasizing experimental Calvinism, uh, they're, while they're not wrong in that, we, I think, need to ask some very serious questions about the kind of experimental or experiential Calvinism that is going on in the lives of people who are covenant breakers. And impenitent about it, by the way. They'd been penitent. They would have uh, done some things very differently than they do. Right. So I'm not again. I'm not saying that what they wrote was useless, but you shouldn't be surprised that the most prominent Puritan after the Restoration is not a Presbyterian, but an Independent by the name of John Owen. That he has essentially abandoned everything that. Um, that the Westminster Assembly would have thought of as being a project. Again, Owen can be very helpful on some theological points. He can also be very unhelpful and even an impediment to understanding other points. And so a lot of these guys need to be read with discretion. They need to be studied with, with um, <clears throat> uh, some... some uh, Care, because if you read a lot of them, you would not think that Christianity had anything at all to do with establishing the kingdom of God amongst the kingdoms of this earth. Right? Uh, they've they've entirely retreated, and their their uh, post millennial vision. <clears throat> to the extent that they have it, becomes simply a pious hope that there's going to be a big revival at some point that will drive uh, the the church into a golden age. So uh, that's not to discourage you from reading the Puritans, but it's it is to encourage you. To recognize, you know, Samuel Rutherford once said when he was in, in England that there were no sound Christian churches in England, in, in London, I should say, during the time of the Westminster Assembly. He said the closest were those of the independent way, but he didn't really know that they were all that sound either. And when, I, when he's talking that way, you have to remember he's talking about people who are like John Owen. Right, so uh, Owen, <clears throat> Owen uh, starts out actually better than he ends up, uh, although he, on his deathbed he retreats a little bit from some of the, the um, sharper points of his independency. Anyway. All right, let's begin looking at these questions. Question one, 
Should we make confession of our many sins against God and His Son, Christ Jesus? The answer is yes. Again, looking at Ezra 10.11. Ezra 10.11 Now therefore make... Now therefore make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers, and do his pleasure, and separate yourselves from the people of the land, and from the strange wives. <coughs> so, um, the idea that we should confess our sins against God and, and Christ uh, in order to see God move on our behalf that shouldn't be too hard a point to understand. Right? The fact is that we are required <clears throat> to make confession of, of sin and to do so with an eye to Christ. <clears throat> right? if, we, if we simply are making confession of sin, it doesn't go far enough. We need to be prepared to take hold of Christ. And if we don't do that, well then, we're going to find ourselves um, in, a, in a position where we are aware of our sin, but we're not really going to be forgiven. Right? There's nothing that we can bring. And so we have to make confession, penitent confession of sin and this with an eye to Christ, whom we pierced, and mourning because of him. Uh, Zechariah 12, 10. Zechariah 12, verse 10. I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. The idea here is we have to make penitent confession of sin. And, and the reason for it is that we are required to go before God in a penitent state of mind. But we also have to have faith toward God and that's in Christ. Right? So repentance and faith go together. And that's required in all of our endeavoring and approaching unto God in hope of making, uh, making that approach that is so necessary to, um, uh, to seeing the, the proper outcome of this, this covenanting, right? To see this covenanting go go through. All right, and we have to do so with a hand of faith upon the atonement, assuring ourselves of God's mercies. First John 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. <clears throat> yeah, so when we confess our, our sins against God and His Son, Christ Jesus, uh, what we're doing is we're acknowledging at the, at the um, entering in <coughs> of the covenant that we have hitherto been unfaithful 
that there is nothing in us that is able to um, to be faithful. Right? We don't have the power in ourselves. We don't have the the strength to go forward. <clears throat> we need to have faith working in us in order to undertake our part of the covenant. Right, so until we've cleared the table, you know, moved, moved aside all of our offenses, if you will, put them all to one side, and moved into this realm of obedience, this profession that we want to render a proper covenant obedience, until we get to that point, uh, there's not going to be any prosecution of the, of the covenant on our part. Nor is there going to be reliance on God if we do so apart from Christ. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> in 1643 when they're writing this, <clears throat> they're talking about the... the um, the various failures in church and in state to prosecute the general principles of the Reformation. They knew that they should be doing this, right? They were, uh, the English were reformed from Romanism, but they hadn't done that. In, instead, they had drawn back in many respects. They've been hesitant, right? In, in England, especially, <coughs> Reformation was by halves, half measures. <coughs> That's why they have the Anglican Church to this day, right? The English were half-hearted in their undertaking the Reformation, and this is what the Scots are demanding. If we're going to enter into a civil league with you. Right, against some of these factions and problematic peoples, if we're going to go down that road with you civilly, we, we need to have a religious covenant as well. And we need to be assured that you're going to go in the proper direction in terms of Christianity. So they're setting all of this up front now at the, at the conclusion and saying, look, we've, we've failed <clears throat> and... Uh, we need to repent of this. Again, they're going to do this after the Westminster Assembly. They're going to go through this all over again. You know, they've set this as, in fact, uh, the the um, uh, the sort of the automatic uh, de facto setting for covenant renewal. <clears throat> so there has to be this kind of confession of sin and when we talk about covenant renewal we'll see that that theme gets picked up again right? you can't possibly uh, engage in covenant renewal without this and, and you can't because they, they weren't even 
confident to undertake the covenant in the first instance without this, right? So, so move on to question two. Are the sins of a people against God made manifest by their fruit, that is, uh, present distresses and dangers? And the answer is yes. Look at Nehemiah 9, 32 and 33. Nehemiah 9, Yeah, so when we see, and, and again, 1643, let me paint the historical picture. They're looking around at the, the um, simmering English Civil War. Right. Why is it they've been brought to this point of factionalism and division? Why are they seeing, you know, when they talk about the present distress and danger, why are they seeing this? You know, Parliament is pulling in one direction, the King in another direction, uh, the... Um, there was one faction in the Church of England and they wanted to go in yet a different direction, perhaps. Although sympathetic to the king. It becomes us when we are under the rebukes of divine providence, though ever so sharp and ever so long, to justify God to judge ourselves, for he will be clear when he judgeth. Psalm 51.4 Psalm 51, verse 4, Against thee, the only, have I sinned on this evil on thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. God, in order to, to uh, see the, the sins of the people cleared, uh, God wants his people to acknowledge, right? To, to acknowledge that these are rebukes of divine providence and furthermore to justify God and judge ourselves. That's an important concept. <coughs> Why do these things come on us? We've forgotten thee. Right? That's what the psalmist says. All this has come on us because we've forgotten thee. And that's the lament of these uh, these Protestants in in, in uh, England at this time, as they're taking the solemn league, we forgot thee, O Lord. Now look, the nation is in great distress. In Parliament alone, <coughs> at this time, Parliament uh, really is at the forefront of pressing for this kind of reform. You know, the king is not particularly happy with where they're going. And he, he fears, as, as do uh, the Presbyterians, by the way, but the king you know, fears the, um, 
the force of the independence. Doesn't like uh, that faction that eventually will be ruled by Cromwell, and with good reason, because eventually, 1649, uh, Cromwell is going to have the king beheaded. And he will, for a while, rule over England in the form of a military dictatorship. But again, this is the fruit of covenant breaking, not covenant keeping. <coughs> and in 1630 or 1643, excuse me, they know that this is the fruit of covenant breaking. Right? They need to give themselves over to um, something better. All right, question three then, should we desire to be humbled for our sins? And the answer is yes. We're going to look at Joel 2, 12 and 13, and Psalm 35, 13. Joel 2, verses 12 and 13. Yet even now, says Jehovah, turn ye unto me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rent your heart, rent your heart and not your garments, and turn unto Jehovah your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Psalm 35, 13. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer returned into my own bosom. Yeah, so this idea of being humbled for our sins. When we take a measure and it becomes apparent to us <clears throat> the rebukes of providence are clear and um, in them we've come to justify God and judge ourselves in those situations in particular they're saying we should desire to be humbled for our sins. In other words, um, we shouldn't try to wriggle out of the judgments that God is imposing. We, we should repent. We should have a change of mind. Right? We should uh, stop whatever it is we were doing, but we should allow whatever God is doing in that to persist until we've been thoroughly humbled before him uh, by it. Like the purpose of the judgment, if rightly improved, is to humble us before God. <clears throat> when we kick against the pricks, well then, there's some question as to whether or not we're accepting of the judgment, right? We're not. Are we going to accept uh, the um, uh, the the decree, you know, or the the providential um, press that is put upon us? You know, very often when we look at the ways that these things fall out. The, the situation in 1643 
why are they facing this kind of societal division? Why is the church fragmented? And the answer, I think, that uh, a lot of the English Puritans who are taking this covenant, and certainly the Scottish would would, uh, point them to is uh, the fact that they have not sought true unity and uniformity in the Lord. A lot of the unity in the Anglican Church was a result of political machinations. It was not the result of a reformation that was thoroughgoing. (coughs) There were a lot of compromises. And those compromises allowed, among other things, a lot of vestiges of Romanism to remain in the English church. That's why they have hierarchical bishops. That's why they retain their liturgies and their holy days. It's why they have a lot of of features in common with Romanism, because they weren't thoroughly reformed. And you have to understand, those corruptions are sowing seeds of division. Because on the one hand, as one of the Puritans said, (coughs) they had a, they had a, Calvinistic um, Calvinistic doctrine or reformed doctrine they had an Arminian ministry and they had a popish liturgy you know so some people are being converted some people are being regenerated by the word of God that is there the doctrine that's there and then they find themselves, you know, being ministered to by a bunch of Arminians and a bunch of prelates who are semi-popish. <clears throat> well, the result is that over time, the whole nation is fragmented, and and, and so the the Parliament, the, the Presbyterians in Parliament, are standing between the. Um, the Anglicans on the one hand and the independents who reject any kind of association among the churches on the other. (coughs) If we look at that as a fruit of of the sins of the people and we're going to be humbled for it humbled by it what that means is we're going to then allow God to reform us and heal us right? but the fact is we must be truly humbled for our sins we must be sorry we've by sin offended God and ashamed that we've by sin wronged ourselves we've wronged our judgments and wronged our interests Psalm 34 18 34 verse 18 The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. First we should be humbled for our own sins. Psalm 38 3 Psalm 38 verse 3 
There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger, neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. And then for the sins of our nation, Ezekiel 6, 11. Ezekiel 6, verse 11, Thus saith the Lord God, Smite with thine hand, and stamp with thy foot, and say, Alas, for all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. So, <clears throat> sins of sinners are the sorrows of God's faithful servants. Especially the evil abominations of the house of Israel. The sins are more abominable and have more evil in them than the sins of others. Ezekiel 9.4 Ezekiel 9.4 And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh, and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst, of, in the midst thereof. <coughs> What are they doing in all of this? They're, they're allowing their their um, what, what they see. They're allowing that to affect their their um, their hearts, and they're being changed by it, being humbled for it. Like they're being moved to. To um, uh, to see and and desire something very different. And before this covenant, <coughs> there wasn't this unified vision. Once they've entered into this covenant, uh, they they have. Uh, an agreed upon joint plan according to scripture and this is what they're they're seeking right so they're 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 humbled for their own sins but they're also humbled for the sins of the nation <coughs> and it would seem that they're even more deeply uh, humbled considering that England for example, with Scotland and Ireland as well, these aren't pagan nations. They're not even Romish nations at this point. They are Protestant nations. And um, they're, they're under Protestant government, theoretically, but they've just not persisted. They just haven't pressed the matter. And their hesitance, the reticence, <clears throat> the drawing back, the tolerating of things that shouldn't have been tolerated, the admission of things which should never have been admitted, these have all become sources of unrest at every level of their society. You know, they're seeing the fruit of this. And so they do want to be humbled for it. Right? They don't, they, they, they don't want, uh, on the one hand, um, sometimes when, you know, when something is too easy, it's too easy to um, quit some bad habit, it's very often very easy 
actually easier to fall back into it in some respects because you think I can get out of it any time. So they, they don't want it to be quite that easy. They want everyone to be conscious of uh, the, the state in which they find themselves before God. Right? That their, their disobedience has brought about a series of providences which are deeply troubling. <clears throat> and so they're, they're sitting during the, the Westminster Assembly is going to sit as a, as a result of this covenant uh, during a time of civil unrest and foment. Uh, but it'll actually get worse toward the end of the decade. Particularly, we should be humbled because of the following national sins. First, uh, when a nation favored with the gospel does not value the gospel. Hebrews 10, 29. Hebrews 10, verse 29. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall ye be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing that have done despite unto the spirit of grace. Here was a Protestant nation in, in the case of England and, and also in the case of Ireland, a little bit less so in the case of Scotland, but they, they've not valued the gospel as they ought. And the fruit of that has been this increasing slide back <clears throat> toward popery uh, in, in England and Ireland and in Scotland uh, this tolerating and, and embrace finally of, of prelacy to some extent. Now in Scotland, you know, that we saw in, in the uh, National Covenant, 1638 uh, the Scots have their moment of reckoning and repentance and so, five years later, they're bringing it to England. Right, two, uh, when such a nation has not labored for the power and purity of the gospel. Matthew 11, 16 uh, to 24. Matthew 11, verses 16 to 24. But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like in the children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and ye have not lamented. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he hath a devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, for wisdom is justified of her children. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if, thy, for if the mighty works which were done in thee had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And now Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. 
<coughs> so again, uh, here they have the they have the gospel, but they're not. There has not hitherto, particularly in England and Ireland, there's not been uh, a laboring for the power and purity of the gospel. Yet the godly party, nicknamed Puritans in the Church of England, um, that party was marginalized under the, the reign of um, Archbishop Loud. In fact, the Puritans got their, their name. They, Loud kept, uh, he was an Arminian, <coughs> and he kept a list <coughs> of all the um, parish priests and the bishops, and he would put next to each one a, a little notation, O for Orthodox or P for Puritan. Uh, it was not considered a positive thing, uh, you know, by by the Arminian bishop, who was the um, archbishop of the church uh, for a good part of the early uh, 1600s. Anyway, there, as a result, so far from laboring for the power and purity of the gospel, uh, the the Puritan faction in the church of England, they had really been striving simply to hang on, right? simply to maintain their position. Um, very often, they would find themselves deprived if they pushed too hard, if they tried to bring too much of the Reformation. And so, England didn't see that kind of thoroughgoing Reformation they saw in Scotland. They're repenting of this. They're, uh, th these kinds of things. When they're repenting, these are the kinds of things they have to have in mind. All right, third, when those who in such a nation have been blessed with the hearing of the gospel have not endeavored to receive Christ in their hearts. Uh, Jeremiah 6, 19 and Hebrews 3, 15. Jeremiah 6, verse 19. <coughs> Hear, O earth, behold, I will bring evil upon this people, even the fruit of their thoughts, Hebrews 3, verse 15, While it is said today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. So, again, they have the hearing of the gospel. But, and, and this is a reason why the Anglican Church is frozen in this sort of halfway house between Protestantism and um, popery, the, the, the prelacy of, of that church, uh, is, is because they have the hearing of the gospel, but it's been politicized. Right? In England it was politicized. I mean, after all, Henry VIII uh, abolished the Roman jurisdiction in England in large part because he wanted to um, to marry. Well, I should say to divorce and then remarry. <coughs> and uh, he didn't like the conditions that the Roman church were setting out for him. Right, so 
were they receiving Christ in their hearts? Were they eager to see more than just sort of this outward administration? Um, a lot of these people, it was a political calculation. You have to, you have to remember prior to the abolition of uh, Roman jurisdiction in England, the Church of Rome was, I believe, the, by far the largest landholder in Britain. And um, it, the, the Reformation did free up a lot of property, uh, property that I'm sure a lot of the nobility wanted. Whatever political benefits might accrue to a nation becoming Protestant, uh, that shouldn't be the end that is driving this decision. Right? They should be seeking something much more deep and spiritual. But they hadn't. Because again, if they had, uh, the belief in Scotland was that they would look more like the Scots. And I don't think it's an idle belief that they had. Uh, the fact is that in Holland, Geneva, uh, parts of the German, reformed parts of, of Germany, the, the reformed parts of Germany, uh, Transylvania, Hungary, uh, even among the French, Right? When they when they embraced the Reformation, <coughs> they didn't embrace prelacy. <coughs> they largely did not embrace all of these elaborate rituals and, and, and so on that are retained in the Church of England. Uh, they weren't always as reformed as the Scots, but they were on that road and they were a lot closer. The English church, not so much. And so there's concern that they haven't really received Christ in their hearts. Fourth, when they have not walked worthy of him in their lives as they ought to have done, which is the cause of all other sins amongst them. Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. <coughs> so, we're, we don't walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we're called if we're not faithful friends to all Christians and sworn enemies to all sin. Proverbs 1, 10. Proverbs 1, verse 10. My son of sinners entice thee, consent thou not. So again... This idea of being humbled for sin is to allow not only the judgments of God to run deep and, and uh, run to the uprooting. Uh, you know, very often the judgments of God, by the way, are such. <clears throat> God tends to punish people, nations, individuals, um, in ways that are designed if these are chastisements they're not giving over to sin 
they they tend to be in ways that make you come to hate your sin. Right? So that when when the judgment is through, you look back and you think to yourself, uh, not just how you know how horrible that was, but how horrible it would be to go through that again. Right? When when God goes after David for his sin, <clears throat> um, the the results are devastating. And uh, so when the, when the covenanters here in 1643, when they're saying things like, uh, we want to be humbled, right? We want, uh, we, we perceive the fruit of our sin in these present distresses. Uh, do they want them to end? Yes. Do they want them to end in their timing or according to their wisdom? No. They want them to end in the timing according to the wisdom of God. When these things have wrought in the whole of the people their desired end. And so they're justifying God for what he's doing. Uh, they, they do want God to remove the judgment, but they want God to remove the judgment when people are thoroughly humbled for their sin. Why? If you're not humbled for your sin and the judgment's removed, you're probably going to go right back to it. How many times have you heard somebody say, when they get pinched, they say, I'm sorry, I apologize, you know, and they'll come to you and they'll offer all kinds of explanations and <coughs> extenuations and they'll go on and on and on. And then at the end of it all, once the pinch is gone, once they no longer perceive themselves to be quite in that dilemma, well then... They return to a situation, they, or they return to a state that was not wholly unlike the state they were in before they apologized. Right? Uh, people do this all the time with God. That's why the covenanters are, are saying we don't, we don't want that. We don't want that. Uh, that's not what we're seeking here, right? We want to see this as a just judgment. The just fruit or reward of of our sinfulness, but we want to stop going down that road. And once this has had its proper effect in our society, the judgment that is, then you know remove it. But you know in in that timing which will be most conducive to. Uh, seeing that what remains will be more stable. And so I think that that sentiment here, <clears throat> that's a good one. You know, but the problem is, at the end of all of this, what we find out is that most people in Britain at this time uh, were, were in fact unconverted covenant breakers and worse. And so most of the people are not going to be driven back and, and I'm talking about 10 years from, from this period uh, when things really start fraying. Okay. But a lot of, not all of these uh, Puritans are signing uh, onto the Solemn League. 
Uh, not all of them are going to um, become indifferent. Some of them die right before this is really clear where all this is going. Uh, there are a few that that um, remain in a state of being persecuted until they die. Because they're not going to compromise. But others compromise. By the way, when I mentioned Thomas Watson earlier, I didn't mean to give the impression. Uh, Watson, I, I think, is one of these guys who, uh, when he was eject, ejected over this issue of the covenant, uh, among other things, uh, I think he, um, if I recall, uh, Watson was one of these people who stood outside and um, uh, did not accept the various compromises they offered him to try to go back and preach. Uh, I think he was one of the more faithful Puritans during that period of time. Uh, so don't... <clears throat> but, but not all of them were like that. And you, you probably should know a little bit about how they handled that situation uh, before you, you know, read them. Just so you know, uh, keep in mind, someone who's guilty of something in an impenitent state is not a reliable witness uh, on behalf of what you should do in a similar situation. Right? So it's, it's important to know who is standing with this covenant later on when they're writing, and who is not. And the things they wrote at this time are generally going to be in in, um, uh, in conformity with this idea, but I can tell you um, <clears throat> there are people like Edmund Calamy who starts out very strong and very good <coughs> and ends up a bishop. And he was a Westminster divine. But he finally conforms. And in all points where he had to compromise, you can be sure that he is not a reliable God. And that whatever moved him to accept that bishopric, uh, that is infecting his thinking probably sometime before. right? That fear, whatever it is, trepidation, uh, it's already infected. This is one reason why you know, we can, uh, when, when we see somebody make it to the end of their lives and they die faithful, we can very often look back and, we, you know, their, their writings and things uh, seem to be better, right? They, they seem to be more helpful. You know, God, Calvin never looked back. John Knox never looked back. You know, they didn't ever uh, draw back from what they were doing. Other people, not so much. And, and once they, you know, they start expressing themselves uh, and they're in decline, they start writing and they keep writing in, in that state of decline, those things are no longer nearly as useful. You know, and, and you have to wonder and you have to watch when you're reading things even before that because the fact is that a lot of these people do begin to, you know, to show evidence of this beforehand. So, you know, when you get to the Puritan material after 1660, thereabouts, 
Uh, you need to be very careful with what you're seeing, what you're reading. Um, when it, it, maybe one thing, if all they're doing is writing on experimental religion, but if these are people who backslid and went in, you, you need to be concerned. Right? Because just like we're talking about here, letting the, the, um, the humility for sin to sink in, uh, th this is an important point that they want to make. Those people, think of that in reverse. Uh, that sin is actually, you know, in the process of leavening in them, and we don't know when it started. And so we don't know if it touched what they wrote or when it might have touched what they wrote prior to that. So we just have to be careful. People who don't think biography is important, biography is very important, it's going to tell me whether or not you were a faithful witness. All right, question four. Should our purpose, desire, and endeavor vowed and promised for ourselves and all others under our power and charge, both in public and private, in all duties to God and man, be to amend our lives, and each one to go before another in the example of a real reformation? The answer is yes. Look at Hosea 14, 1 to 9. Hosea 14, <clears throat> verses 1 through 9. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. Asher shall not save us. We will not ride upon horses. Neither will we say any more to the work of our hands. Ye are our gods. For in thee the fatherless findeth mercy. I will heal their backsliding, I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from him. I will be as the dew unto Israel, he shall grow as the lily, and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread, and his beauty shall be as the olive tree, and his smell as Lebanon. They that dwell under his shadow shall return, they shall revive as the corn, and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim shall say, What have I to do any more with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree. From me is thy fruit found. <coughs> Who is wise, and he shall understand these things, prudent, and he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them. But the transgressors shall fall therein. Okay, so, when we get to this section of the conclusion, what they're telling us is in order to um, prosecute the ends of the covenant we have to prosecute that covenant in ourselves right? we, uh, we, we have to do that and then go on everyone should be provoking one another as an example of real reformation. Right? In other words, in a reforming society, you don't want to be the least reformed person. You want to be trying to reform and press other people around you by your example. And they raise that question of, you know, should we um, <clears throat> endeavor in ourselves and those under our power and charge in public and private so fathers, ministers magistrates have additional responsibilities in all of these respects 
it is important that there be an endeavoring to amend one's life. Right? There, there, you can't expect <coughs> that you're going to see reformation of the public square when the reformation of your interior life is not going on. You need to reform yourself and then by your example try to encourage reformation in others. So this is why you shouldn't you shouldn't skirt the issues of reform, right? I mean uh, this is one of these situations where uh, you know I'm reminded of um, uh, the the question of you know at what point is is a woman's dress too short, right? And and the answer is you know while the Bible doesn't say exactly where uh, where it should be, you know. We know at, at a certain point, you know, people actually start to look at you and think that's short, right? So the question is, why are you even getting near that? In fact, as we're going to, we'll get into it, and I have gotten into it, I, I do think the Bible is, is uh, pressing for something uh, more substantial. But, I, you know, in, in a lot of these uh, cases, I think Calvin brings up the question of, you know, how many... How many buttons on a dress <clears throat> is ostentatious? And he, he said, you know, we don't have a number, but at a certain point when it becomes merely a matter of ornament, uh, then expect the elders to say something. You know, that's the way he approached that, that kind of question. And so the, the question is, you know, why, okay, if, if, if he's saying that, and that seems to be the consensus of a lot of the godly, why do we want to get near the edge, right? The, the, your life should not be defined by trying to determine how close to the edge of the moral cesspool can you get before you fall in, right? When you know there's a moral cesspool there, you know there's a problem there, it's better to, to keep pressing in the other direction. Besides, by doing that, what you're doing is you're encouraging others in that other direction. Right? That's the issue. And, and while I use that example, I don't understand me to be limiting it to that example. This should be with respect to everything, where you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, it might be okay if I do this, or it might be okay if I do that. Uh, this, look, when it becomes questionable... Right? When, when you reach the, the point where you're, whatever you're doing or thinking has become questionable, you should have never gotten there. Right? You should have stopped a long time before that. And if you were following this kind of principle, you would have. Because you would be conscious of the fact that you are supposed to be amending your life. You would have been circumspect in the way you're walking. Why? Because you want to be an example of real reformation, encouraging others. It's much better, isn't it, for people to comment on something about you or something that you're doing 
where they're they're expressing wonder at this or that, not because it's loud, obnoxious, or immoral, but rather because it is in fact uh, contrary to the to, to the modern decadent society, and it has become noticeable. Right, that encourages other people. And you just don't know how many people you encourage right, by a good example. You, know, you have no idea how many people's lives. And so this is why they're concerned about this. They don't, they don't view, and this is something to keep in mind, uh, these people who are framing this covenant, they don't view a, a society as simply an aggregate of individuals. They view people as necessarily standing in a series of relations as superiors, equals, and inferiors. Always. As John Donne said, no man is an island. And every man's death diminishes me. That's so why I said, ask not for whom the bell, bell tolls. It would bring the bell and somebody died. It tolls for thee. Right. <clears throat> You're not an island. Believers are to promise not only verbal acknowledgments, but a real reformation. 2 Samuel 24.10 2 Samuel 24, verse 10. And David's heart smote him after that he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. Yeah, David, when, when David is um, brought to a sensible acknowledgement of his sin, you know, and, and this is, uh, keep in mind, when people are sinning, they are like animals, right? They are senseless to the moral consequences of their actions. They're just not thinking that way. They don't care. It's bestial. This is why the reprobator described, you know, in, in uh, Peter and, and Jude as, as being brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. They're like animals. But when you become aware and sensible, David was no longer like a beast when he returned to his senses. That's what repentance is. To have a change of mind. To return to your right mind. Then he wants real reformation. He sees what he's done. He's horrified by what he's done. He wants nothing more than to have all of the guilt taken away. So not just a verbal, oh, I'm sorry. It's a heartfelt grief and expression of remorse. And we know that David is remorseful in Psalm 51. Uh, he's remorseful not only and not primarily even uh, toward the people that have been offended, but he's remorseful toward God. 
Right in this place, uh, Scripture teaches first, you know, returns to God to covenant against sin. Job thirty-one one. Job thirty-one verse one. I made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Yeah, we can't expect that God should take it away by forgiving it if we do not put it away by forsaking it. Uh, Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. Proverbs twenty-eight verse thirteen. <clears throat> He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Yeah, and let me just comment on this. You know, when people try to hide what they've done rather than confess it, um, usually it, it is a festering mess. Um, the, fact, the fact is that trying to conceal sin very often leads us to more sinning. And the reason is when we're hiding it, we're not forsaking it. You know, when we forsake it, when we forsake a sin, it's it becomes relatively easy for us then to put it in a box and put it over there and condemn it, right? And, and say, yeah, I did that and I condemn it. Right? That's not me. That, that's what I did. It's not me. When we hide it, we're hiding it largely because it's still me. You know, it's still something, you know, that I'm, uh, I'm um, perhaps struggling with. And so, God, God wants us to forsake it. In fact, I was just talking to somebody today uh, about um, this idea that that God could... The the idea was that God would have mercy on people um, regardless of whether or not they were penitent. And I, I said to him, I think people believe that need to ask themselves whether or not God chose to save sinners at the expense of his justice. Right? Did, did God set aside justice in order to, to save or have mercy upon men? You know, is, is justice the, the casualty of mercy? Or did God contrive a way of mercy that upheld justice? Because if he, if he did the latter... Uh, number one, we should be antinomians. Number two, then we have no reason to think he's going to forgive sin if we don't forsake it. Right? We need to we need to ask ourselves those kinds of questions. <clears throat> you know, a lot of people who think, "Oh, God is going to be merciful to to uh, you know to this nation," for example. Who can tell if God will be merciful? Well, I can. Has God been just? Where's the justice of God? Show me the justice of God set in the balance and explain to me how He's going to be merciful to a nation that rejects the gospel. There is no path 
to divine mercy apart from Christ. So don't expect God is going to take away uh, your sin by forgiving it if you're not ready to forsake it. Because mercy and justice need to be present. Second, to be particular in our covenants and resolutions against sin as we ought to be in our confession because deceit lies in generals. 1 John 1.9 1 John 1 verse 9 And what, what this means is this. When people tell you that they, um, they're sorry for their sins, but they don't want to mention any sin in particular, when people speak in generals and, and try to avoid particulars, they're trying to deceive you. Or, or maybe they're trying to deceive themselves. Trying to deceive God. You know, saying I'm sorry without specifying for what is laying a trap. Right, because the person to whom you're saying I'm sorry is probably thinking about one thing and the person saying I'm sorry in general is probably thinking about something else or perhaps not even anything really. Right, so when we do that with God, when we come to God and we, you know, we want to say to God, well, we're so, I'm so sorry, I'm a, I'm a sinner. Sure, of course you are. You want to get specific? You want to get personal about it? You want to keep it in generals? If the Bible encourages repentance not from sin generally, but from sin specifically. Right? I, yes, I, I sin generally. I'm a sinner. Particularly, there are some sins... Uh, which are problematic for me or for you or for anyone else who's listening, right? Uh, we have particular sins which do so easily beset us and of which and from which we need to repent. Uh, we need to seek forgiveness. So confession um, is best in particulars. Resolutions against sin in particulars, covenants, particulars, right? Um, this is why they they set forth those articles in the Solemn League. They know that they need to be setting down particulars. It's not enough to say, and, and this is what people don't understand, and why we have terms of communion. You know, they say, what, what's, I believe the Bible. Sure. So does every... Jehovah Witness, every Seventh Day Adventist, every Baptist that you might want to talk to. Well, maybe not the Baptists, right? They don't believe the Old Testament. Um, but, <clears throat> you know, a lot of these people will say they believe the Bible. 
But when you start to talk about what the Bible teaches, well, then they say, well, we don't believe that. Oh, so you don't believe the Bible. Right? Because the Bible isn't generally something. It is specifically a number of things. Right? You, you believe propositions. Generalities cater to feelings. Feelings are deceived. Particulars, well, those are propositional and they require thought. Three. To covenant especially and expressly against those sins which we have been most subject to, which have most easily beset us, which we have been most frequently overcome by. Hebrews 12, 1. Hebrews 12. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth easily doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Yeah, we must keep ourselves from, and therefore must thus fortify ourselves against our own iniquity. Psalm eighteen twenty three. Psalm eighteen verse twenty three. I was also upright before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. <clears throat> so what is our iniquity? What is the sin which so easily besets us? What, uh, what is it which, which um, uh, frequently overcomes us? It's not sin in general, right? It's specific sin. And it's against those sins that we should covenant especially and expressly. And that goes for individuals. We'll, we'll talk about this more um, when we, we talk about covenant renewal and so on. We'll, we'll get into some of this a bit more. But uh, it also goes for societies, whether we're talking ecclesiastical, civil, Right, the moral person. Well, by the way, this is something uh, which, let me say, this is one of these areas where um, it, it does matter, your, your nationality. Because the English, for example, have certain uh, besetting sins. All right? Um, The Germans have certain besetting sins. You know, every different group of people in the world, remember there are certain familial sins which run down the line. And so when we talk about besetting sins, not every nation is subject to the same kinds of besetting sins. Every nation is subject to sin, to be sure. But when you talk, start talking about national covenanting, right? Now, the Psalm League is a little different. It's an international covenant, and so it's really taking up things which have bearing on all societies, which is something we're going to come back to at the end. 
but this point here I think is important. We talk about our own iniquity. You know, you as an individual <clears throat> have certain besetting sins. Those sins, some of those sins are sins which you share with your family. Some with your nation. We're not simply detached individuals. So repentance becomes much more difficult and complex uh, when you start getting people all mixed up because it, you're back to that, t you're, you're sort of going uh, to the Tower of Babel scenario. Where some people are, are going to be sitting there and saying, well, that doesn't really sound like me. And I don't know why, you know, why we have to repent of this or that. Uh, the fact is that some of these things are, are um, peculiar or more, uh, you know, as, as Paul says, the Cretans are always liars, right? It doesn't mean he said that all men are liars, but he's saying that the, the people from Crete, they're particularly given to this particular kind of sin, right? They're, they're slow bellies. Okay, they're, there's something peculiar to that people. You know. So there, there is that element here. So when they're when they're talking about this, uh, there's a reason why when they're taking this covenant, when they're sending it around, they're sending it around, <coughs> uh, they, they send it up, and, and the churches are forming nationally, right? They're not, the church is not international. That was Rome's heresy. Because we do have, uh, we do have groupings, subgroupings where, where, um, we are more familiar uh, with one another and we are able better to have a sense of the kinds of, of weaknesses or sins in, in our society, amongst our people, and all of that. And so the Scots are going to deal with this, the Irish are going to have to deal with it, the English are going to have to deal with it, and so on. Uh, that's just a, a, an aside. All right, the fifth point here or fifth question, I should say. What are the ends aimed at by making confession of sin, profession of desire to be humbled, and purposing and endeavoring real reformation? Well, there are two. <clears throat> so the ends of this are two. The first, that the Lord's wrath might be turned away. We're going to look at 2 Chronicles 7, 14 and 12, uh, 5 to 7. 2 Chronicles 7, 14. <coughs> If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Second Chronicles 12, verses 5 through 7. Then came Shemaiah the prophet to Rehoboam and to the princes of Judah, 
that were gathered together to Jerusalem because of Shishak, and said unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Ye have forsaken me, and therefore have I also left you in the hand of Shishak. Whereupon the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves, and they said, The Lord is righteous. And when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, saying, They have humbled themselves, therefore I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance. And my wrath shall not be poured out upon Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Yeah, so, confession of sin, profession of desire to be humbled, and endeavoring real reformation first has as its object or goal turning away the Lord's wrath. God is angry with the wicked every day. God is wrathful against a people who've been favored with the revelation of his word and have turned aside. And when a people that are professing to be a Christian people sin, they need to make confession of that. <clears throat> they need to be uh, desirous of being humbled for it and and then reformed from it. There's something wrong <coughs> with a people <coughs> who profess to be Christian <coughs> and are okay with remaining in a state of sin. Now this used to be more obvious, I think, to people than it may be today. A lot of people today who think that, you know, I can be a Christian and uh, that Christian is just a matter of calling myself a Christian and then I can do anything I want and because I told you I'm a Christian, you have to accept me as a Christian. That's using language as a convention. Right? We think that Christian, you know, Christian means something. It should signify something real. So, uh, when people profess to be Christian, if somebody says, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I, I'm doing, and I, I see this now and again, uh, there are various video clips around of, of people uh, who are uh, witnessing to other people, and they'll claim to be Christians, and then they'll go on to talk about um, their current habitual life of sin. It just does not uh, it doesn't go together. Right? Claiming to be a Christian and, and professing to be a great sinner. You know, Christians <coughs> are sinner, you know, sinners, but uh, sinners who are endeavoring to be reformed. If you're not interested in that that second part, reform. You know, there, there's reason why the gospel talks about repent and believe. There's no real belief if there's no real repentance. They're, in a sense, flip sides of the same coin. If you're believing in God you ought to be repenting. You're having a change of mind. If you're having a change of mind, uh, then you're believing in God. 
thing, but having a change of mind means leaving behind all of these things and endeavoring for real reformation. And, and the first reason these covenanters are given, giving for that is turning away the Lord's wrath. Remember, the wrath of God is why they're seeing the fruit of their sin in their society. <clears throat> they're not trying to remove the wrath without first removing the sin. They're not seeking a resolution to this enmity with God apart from the covenant with God. And anybody who is, at whatever level, right, trying to, uh, trying to uh, claim to be Christians or claim to, they can have peace with God apart from this reformation of life, uh, that is absolutely false. Jesus didn't come to save you in your sin, came to save you from your sin. Two, <clears throat> the second head that he might establish his covenant in churches in truth and peace. So we'll look at Psalm ninety verses seven and eight, and then thirteen to seventeen, then Isaiah sixty-two seven. Psalm ninety verses seven, eight, and thirteen through seventeen, verses seven and eight. For we are consumed by thine anger and by thy wrath. Are we troubled? Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins, in the light of thy countenance. In verses thir- thirteen through seventeen. Return, O Lord, how long, and let it repent thee concerning thy servants. O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us, and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servants, and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. Isaiah 62, verse 7. And give him no rest till he establish, until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> what they're trying to do is see that the true Reformed religion is established in these nations, that the churches and nations be covenanted and established in truth and in peace, uh, both with respect to church and state, as well as between the three nations. And so that when I say it's an international covenant, we're going, to, we're going to come back to this idea, but they're not, again, although there are characteristics of the English or the Scots or the Irish, there are also, because we're all human beings, right, they're are also plenty of things here that are common to all and are the responsibility of all men, whatever their condition, whatever their nation, whatever their tribe, whatever their tongue or language. Right? There are common responsibilities. And it's in those things, you see, those things, this is why this is going to wrap up the way it does, but in those things we are in a position to... Uh, to encourage one another, to support one another, 
to help one another. And on the basis of those things uh, it is really the, the ground for establishing peace between the nations. Because nations which are grounded upon the truth are at peace within themselves. And from that position of the truth, they have the capacity for being at peace with everyone else. Right? Who is of that truth? <clears throat> and so, uh, don't just because I, I was talking before, you know, in terms of nation states and all of that, or provinces, provincial churches, or what have you, uh, you have to envision this from two directions. Right? There's what we have in common and what we have in particular. And so the National Covenant <coughs> dealt with a lot of things that were more particular. Right? So when we're talking about particularizing sins, well, yeah, when we're, when we're doing that, when we're confessing sins, uh, again, you know, some nations are going to have uh, certain sins to confess that other nations won't. Right? Some some nations have gone to war unjustly against other nations, and there are nations that have seldom seen war. You know, those are two different situations, and require uh, nations that are going to require two different kinds of particularizing of sin unto repentance. And yet, all of them being human beings, responsible to God in Christ, uh, they're going to have, and, and being sinners together, they're going to have, um, they have a common bond of humanity, fallen humanity, uh, that, that needs, stands in need of the same redemption. Right? And so, as nations come to the light of the gospel, they're in a better position to assist other nations coming to the light of the gospel. And that's important. And so this idea of establishing his covenant of churches in truth and peace, uh, this is the end when you're aspiring to that end. What you're aspiring to do is establish the groundwork for what we call the millennium. Because uh, at that time, all of the nations are going to recognize their need and their dependence and their interdependence. Right, question six, how should covenants be taken? Solemn taking of covenant should be number one, as in the presence of Almighty God, Second Chronicles thirty four thirty one. Second Chronicles thirty four verse thirty one. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant which are written in this book. Yes, so um All that we do, all religious service and covenanting is certainly part of religious service. 
uh, but all that we do, especially that religious service, is to be done as in the presence of Almighty God. Uh, we are doing it in His name. We're doing it uh, asking Him to uh, not only be a witness, but be an enforcer. So we should be very careful to do it as in the presence of the Almighty. The second is Psalm taking of covenant should be with express remembrance that he is a searcher of all hearts. Romans 8.27 Romans 8 verse 27 And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. He maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. He knows what's in the hearts. God searches the heart. He knows what's in your heart better than you. So when you're taking a covenant or renewing a covenant or owning a covenant should give express remembrance to the fact that he's the searcher of all hearts, so he knows every bit of moral turpitude, right? Every bit of, of um, resistance, denial, doubt, fear, hostility, enmity, anything that's in there that is contrary. God takes note of it. Which is really why you should be careful to search your heart before you undertake. Psalm taking a covenant should be third with profession of a true intention to perform the same. Joshua, Joshua 1.16 Yeah, and the fact is, God knows your your intention, your true intention, and <clears throat> so to um, to take an oath or a vow or enter into a covenant without a true intention to perform the ends of the same is. Um, it's lying to God, it's perjury, it is a crime against the Almighty. And again, I would, I would point to people who don't think it's serious. Remember the case of Ananias and Sapphira. What, what did they do? Well, they kept back some of the, the proceeds from the sale of their property. Peter tells them, look, when it was in your hands, it was in your own power. You could have given it or withheld it. Not a big deal. But you've lied now to the Holy Ghost. Now, how do they lie? Well, it means that they had covenanted, they have taken an oath or a vow to give whatever it was, uh, the, the proceeds, to the church, you know, or to God. And then they, they proceeded not 
to do the same. And it's covenant breaking. That's what they did and God struck them dead for. So that's a New Testament example of covenant breakers. God hates covenant breakers. Uh, and so, you know, make sure you're true, you're true intent. And don't do it if you don't intend to do it. When people have children and they bring them for baptism, one of the things they're pledging to do is raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Don't do it if you're not going to do it. If you're not going to, if you're not going to raise your kids that way, don't do it. I mean, you're going to be guilty of other things, right? Because you, you really are required to do it. <clears throat> so the real answer is, bring your intentions into line with Scripture. Right, fourth, with the knowledge that we should give an account to God when the secrets of the heart are laid open. Romans 14, 12. Romans 14, verse 12. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Yeah, we're all going to give an account. And, and whatever, whatever is going on, <clears throat> whatever is happening um, in, you know, I should say outside of us, uh, God knows our true intention. God knows our heart. God knows, you know, what we what we intended, why we intended, how we intended, and all of that. And we're going to give an account to God. And so, uh, you should take all covenants, renew all covenants. Uh, acquiesce in all covenants really with this understanding let's look at question 7 should all be concluded with prayer to God without whose help we can do nothing the answer is yes Philippians 4 6 Philippians 4 verse 6 be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God so, uh, this is necessary because, first of all, we need to be strengthened by His Spirit for this end. That is, for the profession and humbling of for sin and endeavoring real reformation. Ephesians 3.16 Ephesians 3.16 That He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. And two, we depend upon his blessing all our desires and proceedings with success Proverbs 10 22 Proverbs 10 verse 22 the blessing of the Lord it maketh rich and he addeth no sorrow with it yeah, so uh, why conclude covenanting or whatever with prayer to God because without his help we really can do nothing right? all, all of our endeavoring all of our uh, aspiring all of our pledges, all of our, you know, all of our best intentions. Well, they're going to come to nothing. And we don't have strength in ourselves. We need the strengthening of the Spirit of God as well as the blessing of the Lord on our endeavoring. 
the success of our endeavor <coughs> is in the hands of God. But the empowering of us to undertake that endeavoring is also in the hands of God. When we, when we undertake in our own strength and power, uh, we are undertaking what will end up being disastrous. So they're not interested in, in that. Right? They, they can see that um, the English Reformation has been defective. They don't want to um, replicate that. Remember at the beginning, it's very clear they want to reform the Church of England in Ireland according to the examples of the best reformed churches on the continent and the Church of Scotland. So they, they do have a model, an ideal, and uh, the Church of Scotland is certainly at the top of that list of ideal. So doing, doing all that we're doing, including covenanting, uh, it, all of this ought to be offered up or done by prayer. Because by prayer we are acknowledging that it is not our strength, it's not in our power, it's not of us. But we need it to be of the Spirit of God working in us and we need the blessing of that same Spirit upon us. That brings us to the last question. What should be the ends looked to and desired in the work of covenanting? So, the proper ends are, first of all, the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31 Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Yeah, and th That shouldn't be... Um, a surprise that they put that at the end. Of course, remember, you know, when they when the assembly meets, uh, the first question of the larger and shorter catechism: What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy forever. And the glory of God is at the beginning of all of this endeavoring work of covenanted reformation. We're doing it, why? For the glory of God. Are we doing it for personal gain? No. Are we doing it for popularity? No. Are we doing it because we think that it will be the best economic course to follow? No. Do we think that it will be in some way politically expedient? No. to the glory of God. That, that should be the intention. Right. Second, the enlargement of the kingdom of Christ. Isaiah 54, 1-3. Isaiah 54, verses 1-3. through three. Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear, break forth into singing, and cry aloud. Thou that didst not travail with child, for more are the children of desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtain, curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles, and make desolate cities to be inhabited. 
So again, uh, in, in this case, uh, let me just say that uh, we can look at this in a couple of ways. Uh, the Scots, of course, are looking at this covenant as extending the tent pegs of the church uh, to bring about a more complete reform in England and Ireland. And I think they're also looking beyond, right? because we know that they, uh, tra they uh, translated this into Latin and, er, and sent it to uh, Holland. They were interested in the Dutch taking up this covenant at one point. Uh, this was intended to be a great reformed covenant, an international reformed covenant. And um, they're doing that because, uh, as I pointed out several weeks ago, all of these churches, these reformed churches, even the Lutheran churches, had used covenanting as a means of advancing reformation. Right? one way or another. Uh, and then the last thing, the last end, the third, is the peace and tranquility of Christian kingdoms and commonwealths. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, and Revelation 11, 15. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Revelation 11, verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there was a great, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become, are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Yeah, so, again, let me say, we take all these things together at the end, I think they are already contemplating what they're about to do as being a stepping stone for a much broader Reformed Protestant and international, Reformed Protestant alliance that will array itself against uh, the powers of the Roman Church. And so, they're not thinking simply in terms of the Church of Scotland or the Church of England, the Church of Ireland, but I think they're thinking in international terms, uh, and I think they're, they're thinking really with the prospect of down the road uh, joining all of the Protestant nations in, in uh, uh, Europe as as possible, you know, as, as possible, um, like the Reformed nations in particular, and I think even at that they're looking beyond that and seeing that this ideal that they're setting forth in the Psalm Lincoln Covenant is an ideal that would provide the perfect platform for international peace and tranquility. Because when the nations are of one belief, and it's not just uh, not just sort of a cerebral thing, but they, it, it, it's a heart religion matter. They really believe it. When they have struggled in a particular direction together against popery 
and have triumphed. And when they are looking at the world and although they have different political expediencies in their nations uh, and, and different political realities, they have very broad uh, common religious interests that are like this. I think we, we can say the Solemn League is really uh, David Steele in his reminiscences said that it, it, it is uh, in a sense a cornerstone ready to be set in the Millennial Temple. And I think that there is something to that idea. Uh, they've, they've certainly laid it out in such a way that it is uh, full of things applicable literally to every nation under heaven. Uh, there's nothing in here in terms of substantial moral um, uh, propositions that wouldn't be binding on, say, Malawi as much as Scotland or on Bangladesh more than England, right? There's, you can't say that. It doesn't work that way. Uh, we've, we've broken it down sort of piece by piece in terms of what the Bible is saying. So there is an applicability uh, and it has certain benefits um, in, in that it has already been sworn and as something already sworn, and I, I've mentioned this before, we're going to be talking about this in descending obligations, but the descending obligations of this covenant in particular, um, roughly, is what we're going to see falls along the lines of what we would call the Anglosphere, uh, where English is spoken throughout the whole world. And so there's a descending obligation amongst all those nations. And I would say from those nations, there is a presumption, a uh, moral presumption, that these other nations uh, could benefit from the same. So the first is that the Anglosphere needs to become conscious of its obligations the second is that this extend uh, to all Christian kingdoms and commonwealths and, and that, uh, frankly, that all of the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ. So that's what we're looking at. That We're going to look, we'll begin next week looking at um, descending obligation. We'll spend some time on that. Uh, that'll be our topic next time.